In sum, the U.S. government has shown that, through the great financial crisis, repo spike crisis in 2019, and pandemic crisis in 2020, it is willing to do anything to keep interest rates down. Start an experimental QE program to buy long-dated treasuries and subprime mortgages, nationalize the repo markets, and even nationalize the corporate debt markets. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this is where you are going to get everything about Bitcoin that you ever wanted to know, and then three levels deeper that you didn't even know were there. That is the show. We cover every possible topic. We hit all of the major pieces, the, the incredible written works in the Bitcoin space, and make them audible. And then we talk with all the greatest minds, and we explore all of the biggest ideas uh, in, in so many other things around this. This, this show, man, the, the size that this thing has gotten now, I, it's crazy. We're, we're getting very close to 800 episodes. Um, it's kind of it's crazy. It's been, I've been rolling this long. I've read a thing or two, you know? Uh, we are concluding today, uh, we are concluding Alex Gladstein's amazing piece on the invisible cost of war. This is part two's a continuation from the episode at the end of last week. So don't forget to go back and listen to the first section of this, first half of it, roughly. Um, there is so much great, in, great stuff in the back end of this article. Uh, and also, I'm so stoked about just Gladstein putting all this work together into his book. Um, it's called Check Your Financial Privilege, which is the best title ever. Uh, but it appears, right, fingers crossed, I don't think we've like... Con- like really confirmed, but it looks like I'm going to be doing the audiobook of that. So stay, stay tuned on that one. Uh, and I have also just recently stumbled upon basically three audiobooks, it's looking like. So I will be doubling my time in front of the mic for the foreseeable future, uh, which might actually not mean less episodes, but maybe even more. So lots of exciting stuff. Uh, don't want to waste any more time. So let's jump back into Gladstein's latest at BitcoinMagazine.com. But real quick, I just want to thank our three amazing sponsors to this show that keep the lights on here. The Bitcoin Conference of all conferences, Bitcoin 2022, with so many insane speakers and announcements on the way, this is literally destined to be a crazy event. And leading up to it, what you need to do is you need to stack Bitcoin as fast as possible and automatically as we get closer to the event. Swan Bitcoin and forever after SwanBitcoin.com makes that crazy simple, low cost, uh, like just so easy to use by you know doing automatic purchases uh, and even education for any higher net worth in- investors who are looking to put this on their business balance sheet or into their retirement. Go go from zero to holding your own keys. Swan is there. They make it all easy uh, and also automatic withdrawal to those keys. Swan Bitcoin is just is very, very hard to beat. Uh, and lastly, how are you going to secure those keys? With a BitBox hardware wallet. These guys have built a secure, easy-to-use device 
that is a must in the true Bitcoiners arsenal. Not your keys, not your coins, baby. Grab a BitBox, stack with Swan, and I'll see you at Bitcoin 2022. All right, with that, let's get back into Gladstein's piece on the section that is titled Part 4 War Spending in the Post-9-11 Era Unlike pre-Vietnam era wars, which mainly had narrow and clear missions and strong public support, America's invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan morphed into forever wars. This mission creep was only possible because their staggering costs were hidden from the public by the way they were financed. As political scientist Netta Crawford writes, If we hadn't had such low interest rates and Congress had moved, for example, to raise taxes instead of cut them, the public would have paid attention to these wars in a different way. Indeed, there was mass public objection to the Iraq War, with some of the largest protests in the United States since the Vietnam War. But partially because the public was not asked to pay for the war, dissent eventually dwindled instead of intensifying. Ten years after it began, Iraq was a topic barely mentioned in normal, everyday conversation between Americans. This is because American legislators decided to borrow to pay for these wars, choosing to defer costs to future generations. But how exactly does it work to pay for a war without taxes or war-specific bonds? First, the U.S. government needs to create some money for war, so it holds an auction through its Treasury Department. U.S. debt instruments of different maturities, 20- to 30-year bonds, 2- to 10-year notes, and short-term bills, are sold to finance many activities, of course, not just war, to a network of primary dealer banks, the most senior and trusted global financial institutions, who in turn sell those securities to the secondary global market. As an accumulative consequence of World War I, British decline, the Bretton Woods system, American economic growth, the petrodollar system, and the eurodollar system, U.S. government debt became the premium financial collateral in world markets. Treasuries are the risk-free, quote-unquote, asset, treated as money by large institutions who cannot simply hold millions or billions in a bank account. Despite large deficits run up by Washington, U.S. debt remains extremely liquid and in high demand. That being said, it is important to keep in mind that some of this demand is forced. Primary dealers are obligated to buy treasuries and bid on every auction, and various financial institutions are mandated to hold treasuries. As Pecatiello notes, since 2013, banks worldwide have been required to keep around 10-15% to 15 of their assets in bank reserves and bonds. Effectively, he says, banks were asked to own a large amount of liquid assets and were told government bonds were the most obvious choice. They are essentially risk-free and often yield more than a simple overnight deposit at the domestic central bank. A huge, relatively low-price elastic demand for bonds was created by a mere regulatory change. The rules of the system influence global demand, and today there are plenty of customers lining up to buy the U.S. Treasury's promises to pay. Once the auction is complete, the bank deposits of the bond purchasers get drawn down, 
Reserves are deducted from their commercial bank, and the U.S. government's Treasury General Account, TGA at the Fed, gets filled up. Next, the U.S. government's Department for War, now euphemistically named the Department of Defense, or the Pentagon for short, uses this new money to buy guns, tanks, planes, ships, and missiles. So it will place an order for this weaponry from the private sector. As a method of payment, the Fed will draw down the TGA's balance and add reserves to the arm dealer's commercial bank. The bank will then extend the arm dealer's deposit account by that same amount. And voila! The U.S. government has purchased military equipment with nothing more than a promise to pay. A promise highly dependent on interest rates. It is worth pondering what would happen if war bonds were labeled as such, instead of being hidden among general securities. Would they trade at a discount on Wall Street? Would they be boycotted by ESG funds or social impact investors? We may never know. Part 5. The Age of Quantitative Easing Once primary dealers sell treasuries to secondary markets, additional buying pressure is exerted on the global marketplace for U.S. debt by the American government, through the act of the Fed buying short and, with the advent of a new trick, long-term government securities. According to Stigham's Money Market, Few factors move the bond market more than the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve's ability to alter short-term interest rates and the impact that this has on the bond market and the financial markets in general is immense. Government purchasing of short-term treasuries has been common practice in the post-1971 financial system, with the Fed's trading desk buying and selling millions of dollars in securities to, quote, make markets a regular occurrence. This process, however, was supercharged in 2008 in response to the Great Financial Crisis. As the Great Financial Crisis exploded, the Fed used its trading desk and forward guidance to drop interest rates to zero. But this still did not have the desired stimulative effect. Investors were still hiding in longer-duration treasuries, and subprime mortgages were cratering, destroying stunning amounts of value of derivative exposure in the shadow banking system, causing devastating effects for the global economy. So to try and take the 10-year and longer-duration bonds off the market, the Fed, inspired by similar military-era programs during World War I and World War II, began buying them through a process known as quantitative easing, or QE for short. In QE, the Fed will purchase any amount of not just bills and notes, but also long-term bonds from primary dealer banks, and in return, fill up their accounts at the Fed with bank reserves. Since 2008, the Fed has purchased an astronomical amount of U.S. government securities, totaling nearly $9 trillion, becoming the world's single largest buyer. Technically, the Federal Reserve cannot, as it once did in wartime, simply buy U.S. government debt outright. But since the private sector is obligated to buy the debt and also obligated to sell to the Fed, this technicality is easily overcome. In reality, the U.S. government has monetized trillions of dollars of debt 
by printing promises to pay with one hand at the Treasury and buying them up with the other hand at the Fed, with no intention of selling them all back to the market. QE seems like it should be a controversial program, but public interest has been muted compared to other large-scale government programs, especially since Fed-speak has been employed to make sure the process sounds complicated and so that people do not ask too many questions. As investment analyst Mohammed El Aryan has observed, QE, quote, would trigger a much bigger societal reaction were it broadly understood. Let's look at the mechanics behind this process. When the Fed buys U.S. Treasuries of varying maturities, it reduces the supply of those bonds on the open market, increasing the value of the outstanding bonds held by the private sector. When a bond's value goes up, its yield goes down. And so the Fed puts downward pressure on Treasury interest rates through this process, known as, quote, open market operations. The key link to war-making is that with lower interest rates, the U.S. government pays less on its debt and can take on more debt than otherwise possible with higher interest rates. In the pre-1971 era, policymakers were constrained by high interest rates and were forced to tax for war. For example, for each 1% hike to the federal funds rate, which today in March 2022 would be from around 0% to around 1%, the U.S. government would need to pay an additional $300 billion in interest, around 5% of the 2022 federal budget. No bueno. But in the age of QE, policymakers are unconstrained. They can finance the forever wars without worrying too much about the interest rate on debt going up. According to former Federal Reserve trader Joseph Wang, before the Great Financial Crisis, the Fed had no control over medium-to-long-term debt, which was priced by the bond market. If the bond market felt that the U.S. government was being irresponsible, then it could punish Washington with higher interest rates by selling its debt. Today, Wang says, the Fed has taken away this restraint on political power. The bond market is an intelligent organism of sorts. For example, it sensed the outbreak of a global pandemic in early March 2020 and naturally started to shrink in response to expected deflation. But the Fed intervened, buying more bonds each day in late 2020 than it did during the entire QE event of 2008, keeping the bond market much larger than it would have been otherwise. The big question is, what would have happened if the Fed had never bought any bonds during the last 15 years? If those nearly $9 trillion of securities were floating in the open market with no buyer of last resort? What kind of interest rates would we see on short and long-term American debt? And what kind of constraints on war-making would the American government face? Part 6. Modern Monetary Theory and War Over the past few years, modern monetary theorists have gained power and influence on the following claim. That countries which issue the currency that their liabilities are denominated in cannot run out of money and should not worry about a deficit. 
They can simply print as much of it as they need in a quest for full employment and stop only whenever they see inflation. This leads MMT torchbearer Kelton to give an alternative narrative of how war spending works. Quote, Once Congress authorizes the spending, she writes, agencies like the Department of Defense are given permission to enter into contracts with companies like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and so on. To provision itself with F-35 fighters, the U.S. Treasury instructs its bank, the Federal Reserve, to carry out the payment on its behalf. This is done by marking up numbers in Lockheed's bank account. Congress doesn't need to find the money to spend it. It needs to find the votes. Once it has the votes, it can authorize the spending. The rest is just accounting. As the checks go out, the Federal Reserve clears the payments by crediting the seller's account with the appropriate number of digital dollars, known as bank reserves. That's why MMT sometimes describes the Fed as the scorekeeper for the dollar. The scorekeeper can't run out of points. Kelton continues, America cannot run out of dollars because it can print them. It will therefore always be able to pay its debts. Further, Uncle Sam does not actually need to borrow money or raise taxes to increase public spending. The government can simply finance new outlays through money printing if the Federal Reserve is willing to let it. Thus, neither the absolute size of America's debt load nor the threat of bond vigilantes refusing to buy U.S. Treasuries at affordable interest rates constrain Congress's spending power. The problem is, what happens when no one else except the U.S. government wants to buy those securities? This is why, as Kelton and other MMTers admit, only, quote, reserve currency nations with significant foreign demand for their fiat can conduct MMT. If emerging market countries try this, they will literally run out of, quote, hard money, or dollars, and extreme currency devaluation will ensue. Kelton remarks that, quote, even as multi-trillion dollar COVID relief bills push the national debt past $30 trillion, America's borrowing costs have remained historically low. This is in part because the Federal Reserve bought up much of the debt that stimulus spending generated effectively financing public spending through money printing. Here she is telling us that if the Fed did not do QE, the interest rates would be higher. Of course, this has a major impact on foreign policy, but it is undiscussed in her book. It is hard to see how an MMT approach could ever constrain the credit card wars. In an age where Congress does not exert much influence on wars, and where politicians would prefer to borrow than to tax, restraint fades away. Kelton concludes her book with the following, quote, What matters is not the size of the so-called debt or who holds it, but whether we can look back with pride, knowing that our stockpile of treasuries exists because of the many, mostly positive interventions that were taken on behalf of our democracy. The hubris of Kelton's book, which reads like the stenography of a late imperial power in denial about its global decline, is only matched by its complete disregard for the costs of war. Not all modern monetary theorists are neoconservatives, but all neoconservatives are, in some form, modern monetary theorists. The purest expression of fiat money, MMT theory, 
allows governments to fight wars without consent of the people, hiding their true costs and representing a terminal risk to democracy. As Cicero concluded 2,000 years ago, Nervi belli pecunia infinita, the sinews of war are infinite money. Part 7. QE and Asset Inflation One major externality of keeping interest rates at zero to allow expansionary spending is asset inflation. As documented in investigative journalist Christopher Leonard's new book, The Lords of Easy Money, the Federal Reserve has followed a clear blueprint since the early 1990s in the days of Chairman Alan Greenspan. One, fight price inflation. Two, ignore asset inflation. Three, bail out the economy when it collapses. The chosen tactic to achieve this has been to continually, over time, use the Fed's power to depress interest rates. This can be seen simply by looking at the federal funds rate over time, which was close to 10% in the late 1980s and is now essentially 0%. With these low rates, Leonard writes, quote, The state can finance its debt cheaply and sustain the equity market's boom. The cost is in QE, which drives banks to lever up and find alternative sources of investment beyond treasuries, which haven't yielded enough interest since the great financial crisis. No longer can one save safely for the future in the U.S. long-term treasury delivering 5% per year. That was a model that pension funds and insurance funds and trillion-dollar industries could once rely on. BitMEX founder Arthur Hayes recently gave his take on the transformation at hand. Quote, QE is designed to starve the market of yield across all durations by reducing the supply of safe bonds and force investors into riskier assets, pushing up the prices of those assets. As the Bank of England explains, We buy UK government bonds or corporate bonds from other financial companies and pension funds. When we do this, the price of these bonds tend to increase, which means that the bond yield or interest rate that holders of these bonds get goes down. The lower interest rate on UK government and corporate bonds then feeds through to lower interest rates on loans for households and businesses. Say we buy £1 million of government bonds from a pension fund. In place of those bonds, the pension fund now has £1 million in cash. Rather than hold on to that cash, it will normally invest it in other financial assets, such as shares, that give it a higher return. In turn, that tends to push up on the value of shares, making households and businesses holding those shares wealthier. That makes them likely to spend more, boosting economic activity. Curiously, even though the Bank of England seems to be open about the fact that QE aims to create asset inflation, it rejects that low rates are its goal. Quote, QE lowers the cost of borrowing throughout the economy, including for the government, it writes. That's because one of the ways that QE works is by lowering the bond yield or interest rate on UK government bonds. But that is not why we do QE. We do it to keep inflation low and stable and support the economy. The St. Louis Fed once claimed that the US government would eventually sell all the assets it bought post-Great Financial Crisis back to the private sector, making it clear that the Fed would not use, quote, 
money creation as a permanent source for financing government spending. But as macroeconomic analyst Lynn Alden notes, this never happened. Quote, a decade later, the Fed's holdings of Treasury secretaries and other assets, both in absolute terms and as a percentage of GDP, are far higher now than they were then, and are rising. So it became clear that it was, and is, debt monetization. Alden then provides a key insight. Things like Medicare, Social Security, military spending, crisis stimulus checks, and so forth, would likely have to be reduced if the Treasury was limited to only borrowing from real lenders rather than borrowing from newly created pools of dollars from the Federal Reserve. In fact, in September 2019, the money market system broke. And as Alden writes, quote, The U.S. government ran out of lenders. Foreigners, pensions, insurance companies, retail investors, and finally large banks and hedge funds simply weren't buying enough Treasuries, at the point compared to how many treasuries the government was issuing. So, the Federal Reserve stepped in with newly printed dollars out of thin air and started buying treasury securities due to a lack of any more real buyers at those low rates. According to Alden, the Fed basically nationalized the repo market to reduce the interest rate. The Federal Reserve allowed the U.S. government to keep funding its domestic spending plans at current interest rates, without finding new real lenders for their rising deficits. The same, of course, goes for foreign and military spending. In sum, the U.S. government has shown that, through the Great Financial Crisis, repo spike crisis in 2019, and pandemic crisis in 2020, it is willing to do anything to keep interest rates down. Start an experimental QE program to buy long-dated treasuries and subprime mortgages, nationalize the repo markets, and even nationalize the corporate debt markets. In March and April of 2020, the Fed essentially nationalized the private credit markets by creating a, quote, special purpose vehicle that could buy corporate debt. The Fed only ended up buying $8.7 of this type of security, but it saved the market with a psychological effect. Everyone knows there is now a buyer of last resort for corporate debt, too. The Fed has not quite employed yield curve control where the government guarantees the price of longer-dated securities, as the Japanese and Australian banks have started to do in the past few years, but the subject has become increasingly discussed. Typically, central banks might determine short-term interest rates, but the market determines long-term rates. Yield curve control is a central bank program to try and control both. The U.S. government did, of course, at one time employ yield curve control in the 1940s to support World War II. Part 8. QE and Inequality Alright, let's pause right here, and before we get into how printing money, spoiler alert, creates staggering amounts of inequality, Let's talk about how to protect yourself from that. Holding your own keys with a Bitbox hardware wallet. That is how. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that you aren't holding your own keys. You don't actually own any Bitcoin. Which generally means you might as well not have even left fiat because you're still just subject to somebody else. But grab a Bitbox with a 5% discount using code GUY, G-U-I, and get your coins in your possession. 
It is a super secure and very slick little device, and it's also really easy to use, which is a super important security concern uh, that it's just less obvious. People don't really think about it. Most people do not know, but poor backups and mistakes and setting up the wallet are really the main causes of lost funds. It's not hackers and, you know, evil governments. As somebody who has felt this pain in the past of, like, making a mistake and not getting it back, I would know. But the Bitbox just does a really good job at creating an intuitive interface and setup process that eliminates errors. And it just removes as much friction as possible in just doing it the right way. Again, you get 5% off with code GUY, and you can use my link, go directly there at guyswan.com bitbox, and you can check out all of their other little security goodies on their store. All right, let's jump back in on this part. Part 8. QE and Inequality The Federal Reserve lists five key functions on its websites, including, for example, maximum employment and financial stability. But nowhere does it list a sixth function, to create and sustain asset bubbles to exponentially enrich the American elite. In a country where the top 10% of the population own 88.9% of the stocks and mutual funds, asset inflation is a highly redistributionary phenomenon. According to Joseph Wang, who saw the process from the inside during years of trading at the Fed, quote, QE appears to lift financial asset prices, but not necessarily economic activity, end quote. The value of stocks, Christopher Leonard writes, rose steadily during the decade after 2010 in spite of the weak overall economic growth, the broad-based wage stagnation, and the host of international financial problems that the Fed cited as justification for its interventions. Leading up to the great financial crisis, prestigious institutions worldwide went deep into subprime mortgage securities and credit default swaps taking out staggering amounts of insurance on increasingly risky investments. After the crash, with interest rates at the zero lower bound, companies had to look even further out on the yield curve for profits. Most recently, ZERP, or Zero Interest Rate Policy, has led to the explosion of corporate leverage and stock buybacks, which have resulted in 40% of the S&P's total return since 2011. As Wang writes in his new book, Central Banking 101, quote, Quantitative easing has helped push longer-term interest rates to record lows. Corporations have taken advantage of the record low interest rates and issued record amounts of debt that they use to buy back stock. Easy monetary policy has resulted in increased corporate power over wage earners and small businesses a conclusion strongly backed by Shimshon Bickler and Jonathan Nitzen's capital as power theory. In this environment, companies are able to make even more money by borrowing and then repackaging and selling their debt than by focusing on actual products. They are also able to exploit stock buybacks, which amplify returns on the shareholding elite, as opposed to advancing innovation and growth. In 1990, the 1% held 23% of all American household wealth. Today, after more than 30 years of easy monetary policy, they hold 32%.
As Bickler and Nitzen write, quote, Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, but it is also always and everywhere a redistributional phenomenon. As Rosella Capella Zalinski puts it, middle and low-income households typically cannot lend and receive interest payments, but are taxed anyway. So when the government finances war through borrowing, we see a, quote, huge distribution of wealth from the middle and low-income classes to the wealthy. Alden notes similar trends. Quote, In the 1990s, the top 10% richest households owned about 60% of the country's household net worth. By 2006, it had increased to 65%. By the end of 2019, it was over 70%. Meanwhile, the share of wealth held by the bottom 90% of households decreased from 40% of the country's household net worth in the 1990s to 35% in 2006 to less than 30% at the end of 2019. This redistributionary effect has become even more magnified in the last two years of pandemic fiscal policy. According to a January 2022 Oxfam report, the wealth of the world's 10 richest men has doubled since the pandemic began, while the incomes of 99% of humanity are worse off. Fed critics like Jeff Snyder say the central bank is bad at its job. But what if its job is to enrich the American elite and keep borrowing costs for spending on activities like war low? Then we might say it's done pretty well. According to Alden, one reason why the U.S. has a much higher wealth concentration than the rest of the developed world is because it spends more on the military as a percentage of GDP, which is not generally the most constructive use of spending for domestic human flourishing. She says the U.S. could have, for example, instead used the $1 trillion spent on borrowing for war on payroll tax cuts for workers, infrastructure, or simply held a lower debt-to-GDP ratio. She points to Japan as a society that has a very high debt that is spent all domestically on keeping healthcare cheap and maintaining the social contract. So it has less populism, less polarization, higher median wealth, and so on. But America is not Japan. Its easy monetary policy is not reducing inequality. It is exacerbating it. And one of the biggest factors is war spending. By 2030... According to Heidi Peltier, Americans will have spent over $2 trillion on war interest alone, not for anything productive or even any military action that could ostensibly make us safer and more secure. The costs to the country are thus more than simply the funds used on war versus on peaceful activities. But they are even more importantly the funds wasted on interest payments rather than on productive investments, useful programs, or lower taxes. Rather than spending 2.4% of our GDP on interest payments, how else could we productively be using those funds? In sum, a significant externality of the national security consideration of keeping low interest rates is increased inequality in the U.S., a rich-get-richer scenario above and beyond even what was seen in the 1920s. If America's political system was not built on a mix of debt monetization and unaccountable war and paying for military expenditures without public consent, 
one wonders what the U.S. warfare state would look like. One imagines a more limited operation, more focused on defending the homeland from real threats, and only undertaking actions that are popular with the public, lest they get defunded. Part 9. Financial Crashes and Debt-Financed War In his provocative book, The Political Economy of American Hegemony, political economist Thomas Oatley argues that the debt-financed U.S. military buildups of the 1960s, 1980s, and 2000s led respectively to currency collapse, banking collapse, and real estate collapse. Oatley argues that debt-financed military buildups in the fiat currency age actually end up causing recessions. He looks at the Vietnam buildup in the late 1960s, followed by dollar devaluation and the end of the gold standard. The anti-Soviet buildup in the 1980s triggered by their invasion of Afghanistan, followed by the savings and loan crisis in Black Monday, and the war on terror triggered by 9-11, which was followed by the Great Financial Crisis. His conclusion is that when the United States borrows to fight wars, the economy goes into a deficit, overheats, and crashes. Another externality of debt-financing military conflict to add to increased inequality. According to Oatley, quote, Post-war military buildups have constituted large economic events. They've increased government spending on average by roughly 2% of GDP for four or more consecutive years. To put this in context, consider that the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, enacted in February 2009 as an economic stimulus package to combat the Great Recession, increased government spending by $230 billion, or approximately 1.5% of GDP, in 2009 and 2010. The typical post-war military buildup, thus, has had a proportionately larger and more sustained impact on government expenditures than the fiscal stimulus enacted to combat America's deepest post-war recession. In essence, Oatley argues that military spending leads to cyclical economic crashes, hurting the average American. He says that the U.S. has not had a run on the dollar since the 1970s because of the rise of global demand for the dollar. Any other country might have collapsed, but since the dollar is the reserve currency, it is protected. Instead of manifesting in the form of currency devaluation, such pressures, Oatley argues, have come in the form of market collapse. Quote, America's financial power, Oatley writes, allows the U.S. government to increase military spending sharply in response to foreign military challenges without needing to resolve political conflict over how to pay for it. Because the United States can import capital in large volumes at low cost for extended periods, policymakers face little diffuse market pressure to agree on deficit reduction measures, and the ease with which the U.S. attracts foreign capital implies that the private sector is not facing higher borrowing costs as a result of government borrowing either. Hence, the corporate sector has little reason to pressure the government to balance the budget, and the financial sector profits from intermediating the larger volume of funds flowing into the American economy. Financial power enables the U.S. government to increase military spending without having to cut social welfare programs, without having to reduce private consumption, and without having to reduce private sector investment. And so, 
Just like the Fed removed the bond market as a check on power against military spending, dollar hegemony also removes the debt burden as a check on power against military spending. American policymakers, Oatley writes, discovered they lived in a world in which capital was available in potentially limitless supply. Access to global financial markets would allow the state to defer indefinitely the difficult political choices as it struggled to allocate capital between competing social priorities. It is a potent combination, dollar supremacy and QE, but it is not sustainable. Part 10. Declining Foreign Demand for U.S. Debt The recent expansion of the Federal Reserve's intervention in the U.S. bond market comes at an important geopolitical moment. U.S. public debt is reaching a danger zone. America's debt-to-GDP ratio is now at an all-time high of more than 130%, even higher than its peak during World War II. The Congressional Budget Office is projecting $112 trillion in new deficits over the next three decades, which would push the debt past 200% of GDP. In that future world, interest payments on debt would be the largest federal expenditure, consuming nearly half of all tax revenues. When a country starts getting to about 100% debt to GDP, the situation becomes nearly unrecoverable, writes Alden. There is a vanishingly small probability that the bonds will be able to avoid default and pay interest rates that are higher than the prevailing rate of inflation. In other words, those bonds will most likely begin to lose a meaningful amount of purchasing power for those creditors who lent money to those governments, one way or another. Alden goes on to write that, Out of 51 cases of government debt breaking above 130% of GDP since 1800, 50 governments have defaulted. The only exception, she notes, is Japan, which, unlike the U.S., is the largest creditor nation in the world. She assesses the debt-to-revenue ratio of the U.S. government today as around $32.5 trillion divided by $4.25 trillion, or about 7.6x. If America was a company, she says, it would be junk bond status. She points out that each 1% increase in interest rates for $30 trillion of debt is an additional $300 billion per year in expenses. Alden calls the post-9-11 wars the event horizon for U.S. fiscal policy, since they added trillions to the national debt without much of an increase to GDP. As Manhattan Institute senior fellow Brian Riedel writes, quote, If Washington finds that mounting debt is putting its fiscal sustainability at the mercy of interest rates, there is little doubt that presidents, treasury secretaries, and Congress will pressure the Federal Reserve to pledge artificially low interest rates, including monetizing much of the debt, if necessary. This, of course, can only happen if America can keep the buying spree of its debt going. A major trend in the fiat standard era is the U.S. government trying to find buyers of its debt. For many decades, it was successful, often by coercion. In the late 1960s, when the U.S. balance of payments deficit first became a major concern, 
and as America started to permanently become a debtor nation, this issue was addressed partially through Germany. President Johnson used threats to force the West Germans to buy more U.S. treasuries than they would have otherwise. Next were the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, states. With the creation of the petrodollar system in 1974, the newly rich OPEC states, led by Saudi Arabia, agreed to price oil in dollars and recycle their dollar windfalls back into U.S. debt in exchange for weapons and protection. In the 1980s, Japan was next, forced to buy U.S. debt as a result of the Plaza Accord and other international agreements. In the 2000s, the U.S. government spent enormous resources pursuing a policy that would result in China stockpiling U.S. debt, including pushing it into the World Trade Organization, which helped it earn dollars which it recycled into more than $1 trillion worth of treasuries. Spanning the age of Vietnam to Iraq, the Germans, Japanese, OPEC nations, and finally the Chinese produced marginal buying pressure for U.S. debt, allowing America to continually expand its warfare state while decreasing its manufacturing base. Given that over time the dollar was becoming the world reserve currency, there were, of course, free market reasons why investors flocked to U.S. debt. America has, after all, the world's most powerful economy and is the least likely to default. However, the coercive tactics mentioned above resulted in a system where there was even more demand and lower rates than otherwise possible. With the post-9-11 wars relying on the bond market, foreigners, including the Germans, Japanese, Saudis, and Chinese, initially helped finance U.S. military operations, funding up to 40% of all war spending between 2001 and 2020. But now, things are changing. Financial analyst Luke Groman has pointed out that over the last decade, major countries have stopped or slowed their buying of U.S. treasuries. This dynamic began to change with the great financial crisis. Shocked by the U.S. effort to bail out financial markets, the Chinese government began to balk at the credibility of U.S. debt. In 2013, it acted formally, massively reducing its purchases. Many other countries followed suit. The percentage of foreign ownership of U.S. debt has declined significantly over the past decade. China, which quadrupled its holdings to $1.3 trillion between 2004 and 2012, actually reduced its net holdings in the past decade, as did Japan and Germany, partly because of the post-9-11 wars and partly because of the great financial crisis. Trust in the dollar system has started to wane. U.S. bonds have lost around 4% of the value in the first few months of 2022. As Groman points out, pre-GFC, great financial crisis, Foreigners owned around 60% of U.S. debt. Today, their holdings are down below 40%. The gap has been made up by the Fed outright and a market that knows the Fed will be the buyer of last resort. The key point is that without the new policies of QE and ZERP, resulting in the U.S. government taking trillions of its own debt off the global marketplace, yields on treasuries would be higher 
and the forever wars would be cut short. There are those who say that the Federal Reserve has very little power over interest rates, and that the age of low interest rates is not because of the Fed policy, but rather growing global demand for U.S. debt in the eurodollar system and an age of deflation and dollar shortages. They imply that the world is voluntarily, out of self-interest, pumping up the U.S. military state against its own will because it wants treasuries, the international base money of the last 50 years. There is more than a grain of truth to this. Governments, private firms, and individuals worldwide do need and want dollars, especially in times of crisis. But would treasuries be as valuable, as in demand, and therefore as cheap as they are for the U.S. government to pay back if there was no bond market intervention by the American Central Bank? If an actor is going to buy nearly $9 trillion of something, it is going to have an impact on the market. In the end, what is quite clear is that the current American global warfare state relies on QE-driven domestic demand for treasuries. Few Americans would be okay with the end result of less savings, more wars, and less citizen control over state policy if they only knew what was going on. Part 11. The Rise of Bitcoin Peace Theory All right, let's take another quick break before we get into how Bitcoin fixes this and talk about our other sponsor, the Bitcoin 2022 Conference and Bitcoin Magazine. We are so close, guys. I can literally feel the Miami heat. Uh, this is going to be one of the most epic events in Bitcoin history. There will be Bitcoiners there. There will be partying. There will be beefsteak. There will be obnoxious influencers. There will be presidents of countries. There will be cypherpunks. There will be shitcoiners. There will be art. There will be music. There will be crypto anarchists and financial regulators together in the same room. And I literally think there will be history made with announcements and developments that I know are waiting to be on that stage to share with the Bitcoin world. This will be everything crazy, awesome, exciting, rebellious, and all of it wrapped uh, about this space wrapped up into one insane event. And you guys can get a 10% discount with code GUYSWAN. And I also want to announce that uh, I had a giveaway happening on Twitter. The Bitbox guys are giving away an extra Bitcoin 2022 ticket. And I just made a thread of people basically saying why they wanted to go and then pick one from the crew. And that winner in that thread of the Bitcoin 2022 ticket is just HODL. And that is just J underscore us HODL. <laughs> they will be getting a free ticket to Bitcoin 2022. Uh, hopefully, I will see them there. Congratulations, Just Holdel or J, J5.8K. Shoot me a DM. I'll announce this on Twitter too, but shoot me a DM. Uh, I will get you connected and we will get you that ticket and I'll see you there. Everybody else, you may not get a 100% discount, but you do get a 10% discount with code GUYSWAN. It is going to be epic. Now, let's jump back into Gladstein's piece. Part 11. The Rise of Bitcoin Peace Theory To recap this essay so far, 
America's post-9-11 wars have been paid for entirely through borrowing and have become increasingly distant from daily life and public discourse. The U.S. government has engaged in unprecedented intervention in the bond markets, which has helped keep the price of borrowing for war low. Negative externalities of debt-financed war include a rise in inequality due to asset inflation, as well as cyclical economic crises. The only way to keep this system going is more debt monetization through issuing new bonds and QE, given that foreign demand for U.S. debt has peaked. Financing for war through borrowing makes conflict more likely, endangers democratic peace theory, and ultimately erodes democracy itself. Are debt-based monetary systems more belligerent than commodity-based monetary systems? One thing is for sure. The former allows wars to be extended far beyond what would otherwise be possible. Consider Putin. After invading Ukraine, he is now largely cut off from the international financial system. He cannot easily borrow from the international markets. Yes, he has strategic reserves, a low level of government debt, a balanced budget, and a flow of cash coming in for oil and gas. But war is extremely expensive, this one in particular costing him $20 billion per day, and his regime has other costs. If his Ukraine operation is not immediately successful, Putin must draw down his reserves, which will run out in a matter of months, or devalue the ruble to fund the war. He can, of course, do some QE, but is not in a position to do unlimited bond buying. Putin cannot keep a war going forever without imposing real costs on his citizens, who may eventually push back. And that is a good thing. The United States, by contrast, found at the apex of its power a magical way to finance wars without restraint. By abusing its privilege as the issuer of the world's reserve currency, America has imposed war costs on future populations, making it possible to fight prolonged conflicts on several continents without the consent or even knowledge of the public. This is the end game of fiat central banking, an ostensibly, quote, democratic government that spins in an unaccountable way, ultimately enriching a tiny few at the expense of the rest. This final state may be amplified still by the rise of central bank digital currencies, which are designed to replace banknotes and coinage as, quote, cash in the real economy and give governments the ability to easily hand out helicopter money, impose negative interest rates, set expiration dates on savings, operate political blacklists, install a total financial surveillance state, and further accumulate power over private industry. As part of the research process for this essay, I spoke to a securities trader who dealt extensively with the Fed and primary dealer system over the past decade. He explained that the power of the Federal Reserve enables a lot of congressional spending, and that without Fed intervention, rates would be higher, leading to higher taxes, which would prompt greater public interest in how money is being spent. In short, Fed intervention has helped hide spending from the public and given the state unchecked power. Americans find themselves in a situation today 
where war creditors buying treasuries do not necessarily know that they are paying for war, and where the fiat currency-powered central banking system behind it all is propping up a bloated, inefficient, and undemocratic warfare state. There are three potential solutions to this problem. First would be conscription. If every American had to enroll in military service, citizens might have much more debate over warfare than they do today. Existential or just wars would still be fought, but there would be a serious hesitancy to send family and friends abroad for anything but the level of gravity as Pearl Harbor. Second would be a reinstatement of war taxes and liberty bonds, a new flat tax on the American people specifically labeled to pay for the global war on terror, with clear instructions on what it would be funding would help, as would a robust liberty bond effort where the U.S. government would have to sell a percentage of its treasuries marked as such and allow them to trade on the free market. Perhaps the Fed would even be prohibited from buying them and inflating their value. Conscription and new aggressive war taxations are not only morally debatable, but also politically impossible. This leaves a third alternative from the status quo, a change in the monetary system to a Bitcoin standard. Now, of course, no central bank would ever choose to give up its control over money. No group of bureaucrats would ever put restraints on themselves, but Bitcoin may force their hand. In its first decade, it has grown from a mysterious post on a cypherpunk message board to a trillion-dollar asset, and given global macroeconomic policy in which extreme inflation, financial censorship, onerous sanctions, intrusive surveillance, and exploitable payment companies are the new norm it has considerable upside for global adoption. As the only digital currency in the world with a credibly predictable monetary policy, Bitcoin could very well continue to grow and eat into the store-of-value roles currently held by gold, real estate, stocks, and negative-yielding government bonds. It is not out of the question that one day, Bitcoin could become the global reserve currency and an asset that governments compete to attain through mining, taxation, incentives, or confiscation. Beyond this, there is a possibility that Bitcoin also becomes the globally desired medium of exchange for citizens everywhere. While this may seem far-fetched today, consider Thier's Law, an economic trend in dollarizing countries where the local fiat becomes so poor that good money drives out the bad. Similarly, over time, merchants may want your Bitcoin, not your fiat, driving government-created currencies out of circulation, or at least reducing their use significantly. This would be the Bitcoin standard, and in that timeline, the Fed, operating with a reserve account of BTC, could not simply buy infinite assets. Once it ran low on its Bitcoin reserves, it would necessarily have to tax or sell bonds at unsubsidized rates to buy more. America's economic calculations would look more similar to those made by most countries around the world today, which have to think carefully about saving and make hard choices about spending to avoid drawing down their reserves. 
This may sound like the gold standard, which was killed by governments who were able to seize, centralize, and demonetize the precious metal. But it is different in two critical aspects. Unlike gold, the production of which is held tightly by a handful of megacorporations, Bitcoin operates from software scattered pseudonymously across the globe on tens of thousands of privately operated servers. Its users are strongly incentivized to never download and run a new version of the software with more than 21 million Bitcoin. And unlike gold, Bitcoin is primarily held by individuals, not governments or corporations. This makes it much harder to depress its fair market price over long periods of time. Looming global macro conditions make further Bitcoin adoption even more probable. A decade of low interest rates and high inflation likely awaits. This financial repression will continue to drive individuals towards money which cannot be debased. Under a Bitcoin standard, governments would be more constrained. They would still be able to borrow to pay for expenses, issue fiat currency, and wage popular wars. But they would have to be much more transparent with the public about spending, as states would depend more tightly on the people's consent and cooperation for revenue, and interest rates on sovereign bonds could not be as easily manipulated. Yes, all spending would come under a more watchful eye in a Bitcoin standard. But consider what would get cut first in such a scenario. Spending on forever wars in faraway lands that only tend to enrich military contractors? Or spending on upgrading domestic infrastructure, education, and healthcare? The American system, which already tends to finance social entitlements with taxes and foreign military action with borrowing, might be telling us the answer. A March 1, 2022 poll from Rasmussen suggested that 53% of Democrats and 49% of Republicans thought the U.S. military should join a wider war if one broke out in Europe. One wonders what the level of support would be if the questions were based on cost and not just sentiment. Would you support a war tax? Buy liberty bonds? Endorse a return to conscription? Perhaps the American people, in the tradition of World War II, would view such a war as existential for democracy and would push for U.S. involvement with their own blood and treasure. Maybe they would wait to engage until directly attacked, as they were at Pearl Harbor. Either way, a broadly popular war can be fought under any monetary standard. But forever wars in the Middle East and Asia disconnected from the lives of average Americans are only possible under the fiat standard. A Bitcoin standard would reject them. The cost of war might be dangerously invisible in democracies today, but it does not have to be forever. All right, that concludes Alex Gladstein's latest the Invisible Cost of War in the Age of Quantitative Easing. And this again was on BitcoinMagazine.com. Uh, Gladstein's entire series here has just been incredible. Um, I wish I had, I saved so many notes for this piece. Um, and uh, God, I have like quote after quote after quote. 
Um, it would probably take me two hours to get through all of this. But I want to go ahead and get this episode out, and I think this will tie in pretty well to a conversation I want to do in a guy's take really soon. So uh, with that, we're going to cut this one a little bit short. However, I do have to get in one thought. And it's about the degree of manipulation that goes on, the degree of influence that occurs in the economic system when you have something like these, these poisonous debts that can just be expanded indefinitely, the QE, the bailouts of, and just the idea of bailouts, by the way. So we're talking about bailouts of giant financial institutions. Well, the, I think the idea of a bailout is a ridic is a, just a ridiculous term on its face because there, it doesn't change the resources at all. Government doesn't have resources. The idea of a bailout is nonsensical. The government cannot bail out the economy because the only thing the government has at its disposal is the resources of the economy. So what they are doing when they bail out a bunch of giant corporations is they are paying, they're literally paying all of their huge corporate cronies that are the least ones deserving of a bailout with all of the wealth and the standard of living of the middle and lower classes. The only thing that they can do is take pool is take water from the left side of the pool and pour it into the right side of the pool and then point to the right side of the pool getting all this new water and say, look how great everything is. That's what's happening with asset price inflation. When the stock market goes up and equities go up, they say, look how great the economy is doing because look at all this new water coming in, whereas like nobody's paying attention to the fact that they're printing it. So all they're doing is moving, they're just getting buckets of water over on the left side of the pool and pouring it on the right, and then they're just highlighting the right side of the pool. You can't bail out an economy with the own, with that own economy's economic resources. It just fundamentally doesn't make any sense. The only way to improve the economy when the conditions are bad or when the output is lower and when the quote-unquote water is getting low is to allow the economy to correct itself, to figure out where the leak is and plug it and actually produce more water. It's to produce more stuff in the economy. You have to become innovative. You have to produce more. You have to build manufacturing, all of these things. But the, the resources have been stolen away from the true purpose of the economy because of the manipulation of these fake casino debt financial markets that, have been, that are completely unsustainable in a free market. And that's what I wanted to get at. This is a point that I wanted to hit is just how bad the manipulation is because it's not purely the money that is used to fund or to bail out this portion of the economy, but the market that gets built up and supported that then expands to the rest of the economic actors because that portion of the economy becomes profitable in a way that it wasn't before, or it isn't at all in a free market. So I'll give an example. Well, first I'll, I'll give a quote here that, that struck this thought, um, and, uh, and then I'll give an example. So the quote, quote, As Groman points out, pre-Great Financial Crisis, foreigners owned around 60% of U.S. debt. Today, their holdings are down below 40%. The gap has been made up by the Fed outright, and a market that knows the Fed will be the buyer of last resort. This is, this is what I think so many people failed to see or fail to understand or are just, it's kind of the second and third layer thinking about it that 
that often doesn't happen when you're talking politics economics, um, which is not real economics, is that the manipulation of the economy and the allocation of resources or the misallocation of resources and wealth is not limited strictly to the amount of money that the government directly spends misallocating those resources. So if they spend a trillion dollars funding resources and funding, uh, uh, redistributing things into unprofitable endeavors, into shitty companies, into irresponsible behavior and bailing out explicitly bad behavior, that the, the effect is actually ripples out and fundamentally changes the nature of the market, the behavior of all of the other market participants that didn't get bailed out. Real, actually responsible financial companies in an open market environment would never have bought hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars of subprime mortgages and put them as huge parts of their portfolio. They're risky. The, the What makes them subprime is that they are risky by their nature. But when the government is promising or is essentially in a position where you are aware that they are going to bail out these massive institutions that were buying these horrible loans without even looking, they're just buying these massive credit default swaps without even looking at the mortgages that they were that they were made up by because they didn't care. They were going to be bailed out. They, they knew it was essentially a government guarantee. The government had been incentivizing this. They've been putting laws in. Bush had these... Uh, like everybody on a house act or some crap like that. It was it was just obvious pushing, pushing, pushing of all of this and uh, implicit guarantees of funds for like institutions like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And it created a market where a market did not exist before in crap that they knew the government would be offloaded to the government. So without even looking at the mortgages, you can create this entire market of financial companies that now will happily buy them because they expect to offload them to an institution, to a government-funded institution. And then there is a whole nother layer, a whole, a whole nother set of buyers below that and short-term markets that uh, uh, basically pop up because they know they can quickly turn them around between other finance companies and other traders and other short-term buyers because those companies know they offload them to the big financial companies and those big financial companies know they can offload them to the government-funded organization. You have layers of layers of pointless market activity that experiences huge growth in something that the market would never incentivize. Ne normally, ne normally, in a normal situation, the free market would be like, these are stupid risky and they come with a very high price. They come with a very high interest rate. So the economic damage done by the government's manipulation of money and debt in this scenario isn't just that the government bought a trillion dollars worth of bad debt. It also created a market for that bad debt. It also enabled major corporate entities that are now more likely to buy more bad debt, knowing that it is bad just because it lets them access this multi-trillion dollar bag of money that the government is handing out. And then there's a secondary layer of companies that spend time and resources quickly trading that debt back and forth and trying to find the best price to offload it to big finance. And then even, even more is at the bottom, the companies issuing this want to turn around, want to turn it around very quickly. And they're going to issue more bad debt to more people who are not credit worthy. And just they know, they know in any other situation are, is actually going to squander the real resources. But then they can offload it to the other traders. The traders can offload it to the big finance companies and the big finance can offload it to the government. 
all of this time, all of this time, resources, labor, skills is directed toward this giant fake apparatus of empty bullshit. But at the same time, not only is that cost there of all those resources and all those people's lives wasted doing nothing, but the same amount of time and energy is being subtracted from actually producing things that matter and sustaining systems and organizations that are truly valuable to the market. It's not just a positive to a, dis to a terrible destructive market, it's a negative to the good market at the exact same time. It is the same resources that must go to one over another. Our forever wars are literally being funded at the cost of doctors and hospital beds. Literally. Every useful product and service is parasitically bled in order to create this giant fake industry of just money manipulation. So not only does the awful, unproductive, destructive shit become profitable, real valuable things and responsible behavior becomes unprofitable. And then this feeling of meaningless starts to invade every single thing that we do. The wealthy seem to be wealthy for no reason at all. People start feeling hopeless as every year for decades, everybody keeps working harder, but more and more people, even with getting more pay and feeling like there, there is forward, there's this like fake forward progress, you know, like you're on a treadmill going the wrong direction. You never feel any less trapped in your job. You're never more financially secure. And this goes on and on. And, and kids grow up in this, in this situation, never having known anything before it. And then everything's on debt. Everything is borrowed and nobody actually owns anything. And then the culture starts to rot as we develop this collective feeling of stagnation and that the whole thing is just somehow broken. And then in it, that inspires this nihilism and the idea that good and bad is meaningless. It's all about power and who has it. Everyone is bad. Everything is bad. Things that, are, that matter and are valuable are always unsuccessful and punished, while completely pointless bullshit that is clearly poisonous, clearly corrupt, and creates nothing good in the world is, is astonishingly profitable. Of course, of course you have civil unrest. Of course you have a culture rot. Of course you have identities politics where everybody is just worried about who they are and who's the biggest victim in the group of people that they're in so that they can get the grift, the, so that they're owed something by everybody else because life is meaningless. There's nothing to do. We're never going to produce anything. And people who are rich are just rich because they know the right politician. It's the same transition that any single person would have over the course of years of their life if they were stuck in such a structure, in such a system. It's just done over decades and decades throughout a whole society. And the ripple effects of having whole generations that don't know anything else, that don't see how it could be any different, even though it clearly can be, and it has. The effect, the outcome, the result of fixing the money is extremely hard to understate because it corrects that trend. It, it cuts off that feedback loop, which does not merely make the parasitic industry die, but more importantly, it corrects people's incentives and view of the world. It corrects the culture. It corrects how we think and value 
life. How we value society is deeply dependent on the mechanism we use to value things, money. And if we see that the money is disconnected from things that actually matter, well then we begin to hate society. Sound money corrects this imbalance. And when people say that, you know, Bitcoin brings peace or ends all wars, there is something to that. And it's not, it's a, it's an exaggeration. It's a generalization of something, an incentive that is cut off. But we are disconnected from the cost of war. We only are able to produce these forever wars, this forever interventionism and expansionism of the American empire across the, across the globe, specifically because of the mechanism of finance, specifically because of the manipulation of the very thing we use to value costs in the first place. Yes, a Bitcoin standard would absolutely put massive pressure in the opposite direction against that mechanism. It doesn't mean war wouldn't exist. It doesn't mean states wouldn't be states. It doesn't mean we wouldn't have taxation, but it puts pressure against the ease of doing all of it under a fiat system. And just like the second and third order effects of manipulating a fake market of debt can have on the economy, on the culture, on entire industries and what they end up doing and why you have Apple selling credit, making a credit card and Amazon have a, has a credit card and everybody has a credit card because obviously the debt market should be 10 times the economy. Suddenly every company that produces everything is also a debt company. So just like that manipulation damages everything in a second and third and fourth order effect, correcting that heals everything and realigns our culture and our understanding of what the market is actually asking for in economic reality to second order, third order, and fourth order effects. And as crazy as our situation is right now, I think we're beginning to see it happen. I think you can see it on a micro scale. You know, this is why it is something it is talked about. It is, it is well known that kind of being like going down the big Bitcoin rabbit hole and truly understanding what it is and why it matters, you change your outlook on life. You change behaviors. I don't know of any major person that really hasn't had a change of perspective in their worldview or that has altered their savings behavior and how they think of the future of money, of, of, their, of their financial life. That is not to be discounted. It is real. And I think we are going to keep seeing just how much this is changing the world. And especially in this day and age where these are the problems, where total surveillance is the problem, where censorship is the problem, where sanctions are the problem, where endless war is destroying our economic productivity, where stagflation and completely manipulated bond markets are destroying the market for U.S. credit and undermining the very, the very ability to purchase things. The value of the currencies itself, of fiat currencies all over the world, are literally cracking. They are literally in, some of them in free fall right now. This is Bitcoin's reason for existence. To prevent these sorts of problems, to step in and be an anchor so that we can right the ship. And we may just have that opportunity. So, we will close this out here.
that should that should do us for today. Um, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Alex Gladstein and to Bitcoin Magazine for this incredible piece. I still have a lot of notes, but like I said, it's coming in a future episode, so don't forget to subscribe. Um, and got so much stuff coming. Uh, I've got adversarial week. Next week, we are going to challenge some of our Bitcoin assumptions, and I think it's going to be a fun one. Much love to Bitcoin 2022 uh, for sponsoring the show, for the Bitbox, for, for Shift Crypto and the Bitbox Hardware Wallet, and for Swan Bitcoin, the best place to buy Bitcoin. Thanks, guys. I will catch you next time. And until then, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.